This morning we want to come back to our text in 1 Timothy. And I'm going to start with a story that was in the news three, four weeks ago. Maybe longer because I was on vacation in there and time just sort of stops. But um, did you guys read about Diana um, Nyad, the swimmer that swam from Cuba to Florida? Interesting story. Nyad, who's, who turned 64, so she's doing this at, at age 64, which puts me to shame. Um, she swam from Cuba to Florida about 110 miles. Um, I just want to read part of the article. She was equipped with her specially designed jellyfish suit because there's jellyfish all over the place. And she was going from Havana, Cuba to Key West, Florida. Um, She had turned 64. This was her fifth attempt. Her fifth attempt to complete the swim over the last 35 years. Now think about that for a moment. How many things are we committed to um, doing and accomplishing, and it takes us 35 years to actually succeed to do it. And on her fifth try, she, she succeeded, and she had this to say. People who go to Mount Everest, sometimes it takes them 20 years to make it, after mounting expedition after expedition. No one has ever done this before without a shark cage. Swim across the Florida Straits from Cuba to Florida. So that would have given me pause right there. Though people have tried since the 1950s, it's more than 103 miles in open water, a navigational nightmare with variable winds and Gulf Stream currents, not to mention swarms of jellyfish at night, now more than ever before. It's not enough to be a strong swimmer. You need a lot of luck, too. So here I am for my fifth and last time. It's a fine line between having the grace to let go of something you don't have control over and just can't beat, and I could be in that place, except I had to ask myself, is there a way? So I've made preparations to try to protect myself fully from the box jellyfish. I have the best support team ever, and I have trained consistently and rigorously for four years now. She's been trying it for 35 years, but on this attempt, she took four years to get ready for this attempt. I feel stronger and more prepared than I've ever been. It's a fine line between having the grace to see things that are bigger than you, and there's another fine line and edge where you don't want to ever give up. It's an interesting story because she had a goal in mind. She had something that she wanted to accomplish that had never been done. A huge task. And so to go about accomplishing this, she set out, okay, I need this kind of support team. I need this kind of equipment. I need to be training and preparing my body. And, and that is what she dedicated herself over four years to do. And she accomplished it. And we're familiar with having large tasks like that, large goals that we train and dedicate ourselves to accomplish. Many of you in this room have climbed Mount Whitney, and most of you have survived it. But in in doing that, you trained. And I know some of you that have done it, you trained for a whole year, and you're doing the the steps down at, was that Laguna Beach or Dana Point or somewhere? Um, You're doing those steps and running and doing practice hikes. And it's a whole process of preparing. What if you never prepared? And you'd get maybe halfway up, a quarter of the way up, and, and, and that's it. And so we prepare for all kinds of things, whether it be climbing Mount Whitney, whether it's climbing Half Dome, I know some of you have done, run, running marathons, running half marathons, just getting up in the morning and facing another day. But we train for these things because we have a goal in mind. This morning, Paul uses this, this analogy and this metaphor of training for these, these physical events to ask the question, is godliness important enough to train for in the same way? 
Is godliness something that we think of as a goal and a huge goal that quite frankly we can't accomplish on our own? It's bigger than ourselves. I can't just will myself to be godly. But how intentional do we become in training for that? How intentional are we and how rigorously are we willing to, to train ourselves to accomplish that goal? And Paul, as he's giving Timothy instructions for how to pastor and how to minister at the church in Ephesus, he comes back to training. And he comes back to godliness. And it's fascinating because he's not going to say anything real profound today. And so as we go to Scripture today, you may go away saying, I've heard all that before. But why then is Paul reminding Timothy? Two pastors. Why does Paul see a need to come back to this for Timothy And might it be that we need to hear the same thing? That we each need to be constantly reminded of our focus. And how willing are we to dedicate ourselves to godliness and to discipline? Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be starting at verse 6 today. And going through 6 through 10. And keep in mind the context in verses 1 through 5. He's just talked about false teachers and teachers that were bringing other aspects of holiness in. Don't eat this. Don't get married. And and things that weren't biblical. And so Paul now sees a need to say, if you're going to counter those teaching, you need to do those things that the Bible does, does command us to do and instruct us to do. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul begins to talk about what it means to be a good servant of Jesus Christ what it means to be entrusted with the Gospel, the type of person that is entrusted with the Gospel that can be about God's purpose and make that our focus. So let's start reading in verse 6. We'll read just the first half of that. If you put these things, and the, the, these things is, is not only, it's primarily the teachings about false teachers, but everything we've covered so far. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And what we see right at the front is the task. This is what Paul is instructing him to do. Be a good servant. Be a good servant. Specifically by teaching well and putting these things before the brothers. And so this task, being a good servant, being a godly servant, is a task that I I pray every one of us aspire to be. Anyone here not want to be godly? You wouldn't be here this morning if you were sitting here, I I hate God, I don't want to be godly, I, I really don't care about God. We want to be godly. We strive to be godly. And that's the task that Paul lays out. But it's a huge task. A couple of observations out of this this first sort of intro phrase. Um, The first is, a servant is a servant. You're like, okay. You were really tired when you wrote that one. A servant is a servant. And, And let me explain why I've worded that way. The word for servant there is diakonos which we've covered with deacons and, and to minister. This isn't an official title. It's, it's saying, and it's Paul reminding Timothy, you are here to serve. And I think so many times it's easy to just call ourselves servants, servants of God, and I serve in the church. And we forget that a servant is a servant. Servants serve. We are under a master. And so Paul here is reminding Timothy that servants serve. A servant is a servant. It's not about my agenda. It's not about your agenda. Whose agenda is the servant about? The master's agenda. He doesn't get to make the rules. He doesn't get to make the guidelines. That's the master's job. Our master is God Almighty. And we're servants 
because we're called to fall in line with what He wants us to do. Man, that's vital if we're going to serve well, if we're going to be godly, if we're going to make a difference according to God's purpose. We've got to remember we're servants. Another observation there is be able to gently and humbly persuade people to the truth. Be able to gently and humbly persuade people to the truth. Paul actually uses some different wording at the verse, beginning of verse 6 here. If you put these things before the brothers. And, and the wording there is the idea of suggesting or sharing something. It's a different word than commanding and forcing. And, and we're not dealing with false teachers now. We're dealing with believers and protecting brothers in Christ. And so Paul here is saying, no, we're, we're going to treat... Yes, false teachers, you come out strong and you attack and you denounce. And, and he's going to say that in the next verse. But for the brothers, I want you to, to come alongside and put this in front of them faithfully. Remind them. Now, are there times that we exhort each other? Absolutely. Are there, especially when there's sin issues and, and we're, we're iron sharpening iron. But here Paul is talking about a general demeanor, a general way of teaching and of being a good servant. And he's saying gently and humbly, keep reminding. And keep reminding. This could be translated, if you continually put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And when I think about how that applies, I think in our own lives of starting to incorporate God's truth and our walk with God and and our our, um, impressions of God and what we're learning, just incorporating that into normal, everyday conversation. Because if Timothy is instructed to keep putting this in front of people, how do we do that as a body? We keep putting God's truth in front of each other. By saying, you know what, I learned this about God today. Hey, you know what, I read this today. Some of you post verses every day that mean a lot to you on Facebook. I love those. I read those, and and, um, that that is just so encouraging. That's a way that the body is putting God's Word and God's truth in front of each other in a a humble way. But Timothy here is to, to, as he's doing this, he's building a foundation that fights the false prophets, that counters them, that equips people to know truth and to know falsehood and recognize it. Last observation of this phrase, if you put these things before the... What's the word that's used there? The brothers. It doesn't say the other people that go to church with you or the other people in the body. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of of Christ Jesus. And it's important to remember the people in this church are your family. The people in this church are your family. And as we serve together through thick or thin, through people we agree with, through people we disagree with, through good times, through times where we get on each other's nerves, as we serve faithfully through all those times, God is is using us as a good servant of Christ Jesus. And He's building godliness in us. The people in this church are your family, and it's in the context of family that God causes growth. It's also in the context of family that Paul's instruction to Timothy is to protect your family. To protect your family. We have a burden of responsibility to watch out for each other because we're not just strangers, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we keep putting God's truth humbly in front of each other so that we are protecting each other from anyone that would come in and steer us away from the truth. So that's some observations about the task. Be a good servant. 
Now the rest of the verses, Paul now expands on, okay, how do you do that? How do you live a godly life? How do you be a, live a, a life of servanthood and be a good servant? And he's going to use the, the metaphors of training and exercise. And so we're just going to go along with that because I think it's really helpful and fun to, to, to use that and, and really informative to think about physical training and physical exercise as it applies to godliness. So when we read on in verse 6, we come to the first point. Verse 6, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Being trained in the words of faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. First point here, and this may seem, you wonder where I get this at first, but Paul's first point is eat the right food. Eat the right food. Feed on God's Word and be nourished. When you're physically training for something, if you're physically training for, for a marathon, for instance, I know a lot of you run, and you choose that the week before the marathon you're not going to eat, how will you do at the marathon? Lousy. Lousy. You know, you, because you're weak. You don't have the energy. You don't have the strength. Now, now, another option is for the week before, you could just eat candy bars and Dr. Pepper. Well, that might be healthy, but no, no, just kidding. <laughs> and again, you may have a sugar rush at the beginning and a lot of energy, but that, it, that is not a sustaining food. It will tear your body apart. It will tear you up. So think of that in terms of what Paul is now reminding Timothy of, being trained in the words of faith. And the word for being trained there, we're going to see training throughout this passage. This is a different word from the rest of the verses in this paragraph. This word, some of your versions probably translate it nourished. Or, is yeah, we have some nourished here. Some of your transla- translations say being brought up in. And the idea is, is nourishment. It's something that provides sustenance to your spiritual health. And the idea is that of food and what kind of food we're putting in. And Paul's saying, if you want to be trained in godliness, let's start with the diet. Let's start with what you're putting in. Because if you're only putting junk food in, the body's not going to get very trained. And spiritually, if you're only putting junk food in or no food in, you're going to end up with a spiritually weak and anemic body. Spiritually. And so being trained, being nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine. See, a good teacher of God's Word enjoys God's Word. Enjoys the taste of it. Lets it nourish him. A good servant spends time in God's Word and is fed by it. In fact, to minister effectively in the church, you must be spending time in God's Word. You can only run so long in a marathon without eating or without food. You can only climb Whitney so far with no food. And in the same way, you can only minister so much in the church and do God's work so long without spiritual food. And eventually you'll burn out and crash and wonder if you can keep going. ESV does a good job of translating the the tone of this verb, being trained. Because the idea, again, is, is this ongoing idea. It's not you were trained. It's you're continually being nourished. Every day you're being nourished. It'd be silly if one of my kids came to me and, and we're having dinner. And I'm not going to eat dinner tonight. Why? Well, I ate last week. That, that's silly because we intuitively know, or our, our bodies tell us, we should eat regularly. 
Because we use that energy, we use that food, and then we need more energy. That's the idea, the tense of this verb, is being continually trained. Ongoing. Keep eating. One meal is not enough. One meal a week is not enough. So we think, okay, if I'm training physically, how often do I need to eat? And that gives us a great metaphor for how often I need to be in God's Word if I'm going to be godly, if I'm going to live for Christ. And so to Timothy, Paul says, you need to be in God's Word. I'm reminding you, in the middle of ministry, in the middle of busyness, in the middle of pressure, be in God's Word. The words of faith, referring to God's Word, good doctrine, or it can be translated good instruction, the apostles' teaching, the instruction of the church. Be in a place where you're being taught, where you're being nourished. Read God's Word on your own. See, a good diet makes for good health. And a good spiritual diet makes for good servanthood. If we're to grow in Christ, if we're to be godly, we've got to check our diet. So many times as I'm counseling, and many of you have come in, we've talked about different things, and I I always start with the same thing. And and so this is just something to start with. I'll just give it free right now. You don't have to come in for this. Um, The first thing I always start with is, are you in the Word? Are you in the Word? Because think about it, if our bodies are physically weak and we haven't eaten in a week, chances are we need to eat. And so spiritually and in our lives, when when we have trouble in life, when we have difficulties, we're like, man, my marriage is falling apart, I'm having arguments here, or I I can't handle this. And, And we talk about it, the first question is always, are you in the Word? Because without food, you're weak. And I know that's not new. But the question I get convicted about is why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to be consistent? I don't have trouble forgetting to eat real real food, physical food, but why is it so hard and so challenging to make sure I'm in the Word? So the first thing that Paul mentions to Timothy is eat the right food. Feed on God's Word. Be nourished. Enjoy it. Make it a regular part of your life. Second thing that he mentions, do the right exercises. I have an exercise machine up here. I am not going to demonstrate it for you. We tried earlier, and that was awkward. Um, Just getting on and off. This is called the total gym. But when you see this, what do you think of? Fitness, feeling good. Okay, so, so when we think of physical training, we often think of exercise equipment. I was going to bring a volunteer up and have you do it, but I don't want to hurt anyone today. Um, but it's just, just a great illustration of what Paul is talking about. We need to be doing the right exercises. Keep an undistracted focus on training for godliness. And verses 7 through 9 is where Paul hits this really hard. Have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. That's the junk food. We eat right food, and now he's going to say what to stay away from, what, to get, what not to get distracted by. Don't let false teaching distract you. And he's talked about this. Pastor Andrew taught on this in chapter 1. The myths and the endless genealogies. He's coming back to that. Have nothing to do with irreverent or godless or frivolous silly myths. Some of your translations for silly myths say old wives' tales. And that, that's, an, that, that's exactly what it means, is those old wives' tales or those old myths that aren't true, but everyone just sort of chases after, and it takes energy, and it takes, takes time. 
I looked up some old wives' tales. I might get in trouble with this, but... Don't go outside with wet hair, you'll catch a cold. Actually, not true. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Feed a cold, starve a fever. A lot of doctors said, actually, that's not true. You need some energy in your body. to. But these are just things that we've come to believe. Chocolate causes acne. Praise God, that's not true. <laughs> um, although there's still some debate about that, but a number they've, they've actually done studies to, to prove whether these things are true or not, which might be spending too much time on irreverent, <laughs> silly myths. Um, cows lie down when it's about to rain. Anyone from farming communities? Well, then we'll pass that one by. Gum stays in your intestines for seven years. I heard that over and over, so don't swallow your gum. Actually, our intestines get rid of it much sooner than that. Um, sitting too close to the television ruins your eyesight. So you're saying that's going to be true. That was true in the 50s and 60s because the TV screens at the time actually had a lot of radiation that came out of them. More, more than was safe. And you actually could damage your eyes if you're too close to it. So those that watched a lot of TV in the 50s and 60s, sorry. Uh, <laughs> But now it can cause eye strain today. The TVs today don't do that. It can cause eye strain, but that with some rest fixes itself. It's not permanent. So uh, those are examples of silly things in our culture. But for them, their wives' tales had to do with different things spiritually. And well, if you did this, and if you do this on this day, and, and if you, you praise God in this way, then you get this to happen. Or if you take this amulet to this intersection, then the spirits are warded off and you'll get green lights. And you know whatever it is, they had all these silly myths that they were chasing after. And Paul says, you know what? Don't worry about those. Have nothing to do was a very strong word that says reject them outright. Don't spend time on them. So he's encouraging Timothy to go back to training for the truth, not just focusing on falsehood. False teaching doesn't have to convince if it distracts. That makes sense? False teaching doesn't have to convince if it distracts. And if it distracts, Satan still has accomplished his purpose. And so we can spend our time... And, and I know that the ten, my tendency personally is when I hear something wrong, I'm going to prove that person wrong. Show them the way. And so when I hear a false teaching or something, I can just envelop myself in that and spend hours and hours and lose sleep over it. And, and Paul's instruction to Timothy is, don't lose sleep over it. Know the truth. Avoid it. Now, he's also, if we, if we look at 1 Timothy, he's also said speak against it. So you have to have, know enough about them to be aware, but primarily teach the truth. In 2 Timothy 2, we're going to see the same thing. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And so is our dedication the truth, but with enough awareness that we know when it's false? Since we're on sports today and training, sports story that, that is great of a basketball player, Bill Bradley. This goes back a little bit and played for Princeton, and the floor of the Princeton gym was being resurfaced. So he was practicing at one of the local high schools. And, and he began shooting his jump shot, 14-foot jump shots from a certain spot, and, and he kept missing them. Six in a row he missed. And, and he looked at the rim, and he looked back, and he made some adjustments, and then he started hitting one after another after another after these adjustments. And it, then he paused, and he looked at someone that was with him and said, you know, 
that basket is about an inch and a half low. person didn't believe him. They went back. It says some weeks later, I went back to Lawrenceville with steel tape measure. Borrowed a stepladder, measured the height of the basket. It was 9 feet, 10 and 7 eighths inches above the floor, or 1 and 1 eighth inches too low. So not quite the 1 and a quarter. <laughs> he said about. How did he know that? Was it by studying the rim? No, he, he knew the truth so well. He knew the truth of his shot. He had trained himself of how to shoot a basketball correctly so that when something came up that was incorrect, he knew it like that. He didn't have to study every high school's basketball height because he knew the truth. That's an encouragement for us. How well have we trained ourselves in the truth, in the good food instead of the junk food? So that's the first part of verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And this is where Paul gets into the crux of his argument, the, the idea of training yourself, being diligent, being dedicated in the aspect of godliness. Be serious about training for godliness. And the word for train here, this is the one that's used the rest of the paragraph. The imagery is from athletics and preparing yourself for athletics. In fact, it's, 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 the, the Greek word is gymnasia, which is where we get gymnasium. And, and so, and every, every one of the towns or the cities of the time had a gymnasium where the young men would come and train. And, and so, he is, he is using this popular concept and this common concept to say it's, it's like a gymnasium, but for godliness. Train yourself. Exercise. And so he says in verse 7 there, rather train yourself for godliness. Spend your time. And godliness is a correct behavior in accordance with God's Word. It, it means to view God highly in your life. Make Him a part of your life. Take God seriously. And this is so important that we as the church are taking God seriously and, and pursuing godliness it's important for what God wants us to do. In fact, it's so important. This word's used 15 times in the New Testament. And, and almost all of them are in the pastoral epistles to the church of how to lead a church, to train them in godliness. Nine of them are in 1 Timothy alone. So godliness brings actions along with belief. Eating the right food is great. We're getting the right input. But now doing the right exercise, now we're doing something with it and training spiritually how to live for God and how to walk with God. Now think for a minute, the gym, the gym idea and the, the exercise equipment idea, what does it take to effectively train in a gym? Give me some feedback. What, what does it take to, to effectively train for an event in a gym? Discipline, okay? So you can't just go once and you're good? I wish that worked that way. What? Knowing how to use the equipment. If you saw me trying this earlier, it was funny. It was awkward. I almost killed myself. Well, actually, I almost killed myself on the steps getting off. But um, you got to know how to use the equipment. That's right. Know how to use God's Word. Know how to interpret God's Word. Be equipped with God's Word. What was that? Routine. To discipline yourself in a, in a gym, to train for godliness, means it's, it must be part of a routine, a regular pattern. Having the right equipment, good. God's Word, there was another one. Doing it when you don't want to. How many just love to get up extra early and physically exercise? A couple of you. 
We're going with ratios here. <laughs> a few of you, that's awesome. But it's our, and, and, and in the same way, training ourselves for godliness takes work. There's mornings you don't feel like reading God's Word. There's times you don't feel like praying because you just want to sleep. And if we're training, and Paul's using this word intentionally, it, it requires intentionality. We rarely say, I accidentally exercised today. No, you're intentional to go to the gym, get on the equipment, do the work it takes to build your body physically. And so the same way Paul is using this word to say, spiritually, it takes intentionality. Decide to walk with God. Decide to be in His Word. And then do what it takes to do it. And that's convicting. But yet we know it. John Stott, the little phrase he used, exercise yourself unto godliness. Exercise yourself unto godliness. As we read on in verse 8 there, we see that Paul has said in 7, train yourself for godliness, this idea of rigorous, intentional, continual training. And then he explains it more in 8 by setting up a, a comparison between physical training and spiritual training. And he says, for while bodily training is of some value, he's not saying don't exercise. Don't take this verse and say, he's saying I should never exercise again. For bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so he's comparing bodily training and spiritual training to set up some priorities here. To set up what's really important. Yes, there's benefit to physical exercise. How long does it last? About half the time it takes you to get there. <laughs> Fades pretty quickly, huh? As I age, I realize that, that that goes down. It fades a little quick. It doesn't last unless you keep doing it, but physically, eventually our bodies fail. Eventually we die. And this life here is done. And if we've spent all our time being in the best shape ever and looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger, we, that ends when we die. Where's the value in that? And so Paul is saying there's a little value in that. It's good to take care of your body. It's the temple of God. But let's look at what really matters. Let's look at eternal value. Do you want one dollar or a million dollars? And he's comparing these two and saying, no, the eternal is worth far, far more. And so if the eternal is worth far, far more, and it has benefits both in this life and in the life to come, and it helps us in every part of life, what does that say to our priorities? When we can spend an hour at the gym working out, or two hours at the gym working out, or three hours running or whatever, and then two minutes in God's Word. Our actions show what our true priorities are. And if we're not willing to train for godliness, godliness won't happen. But I, I love this verse because not only does it challenge my priorities, which need challenging, but it reminds me of the benefits of seeking God. Not that it's all about physical benefits, but there are rewards. There are things that God says, if you do this, this will happen. And those are good things to, to, to look for. In verse 8, it's a value in every way. 
Godliness, training in godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And we think of the life to come. We think of eternal life with our Lord and Savior, which we, we gratefully look forward to and anxiously look forward to. But Paul's saying, no, training in godliness helps you now too. Training in godliness helps life today. What parts of life does godliness affect? If you develop a, a, a godly character, what parts of your life does that affect? Every part. I guarantee that helps your marriage. I guarantee that helps your work relationships. I can guarantee it helps how you talk with your neighbor and how you view your neighbor. And so do we really want to focus all of our effort on something that just builds us up physically a little bit or something that is going to help every part of our lives? Because godliness is to affect every part of our lives. We can't compartmentalize God away onto Sundays or when we happen to be with church family. Godliness is for every part of life. And so I encourage you to be as dedicated to godliness as an athlete is to his sport. Be that dedicated. In verse 9, Paul says, "The, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Lots of debate, is that about verse 8? Is that about verse 10? But verse 10 appears to be modifying 8. And so it's about verse 8. Because Paul is saying that the the center of his argument is godliness and training in godliness is of great value. He says, this is trustworthy. This is true. You need to listen to this. You need to be reminded of this. Because godliness is a must if we're to be a servant of God. It's a must if we're to work with Him, work for Him, be like Him. Oswald Sanders in Spiritual Leadership says, spiritual ends can be achieved only by spiritual men who employ spiritual methods. And the point of what he's saying is you can't have spiritual results without doing the spiritual work and building yourself in godliness. So how do you do this? How do you, what equipment should we use? What, what's the spiritual equivalent of Total Gym Supra? Yeah. Just some ideas, and I left you some, some room in your notes. And these again are the things we already know, but it's about going and actually getting the equipment out and using it. We need to be reading and ingesting God's Word. Read God's Word regularly, daily, as often as you eat maybe. And I would suggest even reading the same passage several days in a row, meditating on it, ruminating on it. Let it nourish you. If we're to train ourselves in godliness, we've got to be in God's Word. Make it a normal part of your routine. Plan it. You might want to listen to God's Word. These are some other ideas. Um, If you go to our website, in the bottom left, there's a calendar that has Bible reading for each day. And if you click on that, it'll open up esvbible.org. And you can click Listen. And, and I love that because I hear things differently than I read them. And so there, there's times that I'll hear something as I'm listening through it, and I'm like, that's not in the Bible. And I go and look it up, and it's been there the whole time. Just my eyes skip over it when I'm reading. And so it's a different way of, of training and ingesting God's Word. When you go to the gym, do you stay on one, one piece of equipment the entire time? No, no, you'll have like a big arm. and, and I, We're on all these different ways of exercise. And in the same way, spiritually, we need to incorporate a number of different ways. Listen to God's Word. 
as you read it, go through the, the reap that we have on the, the rooted reading, where you read it or, or make um, observations. Then second, the E to examine it or explain it. That's the interpretation phase. And then A to apply it. And then P to pray that God will change your life with His Word. I encourage you, if you don't have a study Bible, get a study Bible. Follow the cross-references. Read the notes. That's part of using the Bible well, is having tools that help explain it. Another piece of equipment that is so valuable is to memorize God's Word. That's why in the worship folder off to the left, we have a memory verse every week that ties into the the, uh, message. Out on the information booth, a little three by five cards with the memory verse that you can take and just go through them as you, as you go through your day or take a walk or some, and, and memorize God's word. It's part of being nourished by it. Prayer is vital. In fact, without prayer, I think our relationship with God will always dry up. Listen to God's word being preached and taught. Be faithful in the assembly of believers. The church is our gymnasium. Brothers and sisters in Christ coming together. Be faithful to corporate worship. Those are part of the disciplines that God uses to form godliness into us. So not only do we have to eat the right food, we need to do the right exercises. I challenge you to make those a priority. And then finally, verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive. So he comes to the purpose, or he comes to the, the big picture here. And the word for toil there is again, it comes from athletics. It's to work to exhaustion, or run to exhaustion, until you don't think you can go anymore. And, and strive is that last ounce of energy at the finish line, that kick at the end, that I'm going to make it, I'm going to give my best at the end. And the, the word sometimes is with agonize. So it's the agonizing effort at the end that is our last ounce of effort. So that gives us the idea of how important this is to Paul as he's passing it on to Timothy. For to this end we toil and strive because, and I would underline because, because this gives us why we're doing it. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so the point here, point number three in our training regimen, keep your eye on the prize. Keep the master's goal in mind. When you're training for Whitney and you just don't want to do any any more stairs, what keeps you going? The goal. I'm going to make it to the top of this mountain. I'm not going to die up there. When you're training for a marathon, what keeps you going? I need to be able to run 26 miles. 26.2, thank you. So anything physically that we're training for, in fact, people will put pictures of their goal on the exercise equipment or something that keeps them going. Well, here's what keeps us going. Our hope is set on a living God, not a dead God, not some idol, not some myth, but a living God who is with us and hope that we have confidence in, that we can trust, that will not let us down. So it's about coming and being servants of the Almighty Living God. And the last part of verse 10 there gives us the reason for the, that, that is woven through the entire books of First and Second Timothy, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 
And how many times already have we seen Paul come back to salvation? He comes back to the gospel. The title of our series is Entrusted. Entrusted with the gospel. And this is the reason we train. This is the reason we serve God is because we are to be faithful servants of what we have been entrusted with. Training in godliness has eternal value, not only in our own lives, but because it allows us to show God's love to others. It allows us to share the gospel. It allows us to make what's important to the master important to us. We have something to share. We have the most incredible message to share. Now the wording here is is confusing at times who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And we know, again, with Scripture, you always compare Scripture with Scripture and allow Scripture to help us understand it. This is not teaching universalism. It's not teaching that everyone is saved. What it's teaching is that God provided the opportunity of salvation to all people. His death on the cross was sufficient to handle all people and an offer of salvation to all people. But the second phrase there, Paul clarifies, especially or particularly of those who believe. And this is where salvation is what we would say effective or applied to anyone that repents and comes to God and believes in Him and calls on His name. We think back to to 1 Timothy 2, just back a couple pages, verses 3 and 4, where it says God's desire is for all men to be saved. And that's, this, is, this should be read with that verse. It reflects that God wants all to be saved. He provided salvation as an offer to all people, but only those who accept Him and repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And if that's God's heart, that all men will be saved, then I better get to the spiritual gym and be about what my Master wants me to be about. That's the picture on my exercise equipment. Is maybe a single soul that God wants me to preach the gospel to that will be in heaven instead of hell at the end of time. Is that worth spending a little bit of time training? A life for eternity? Absolutely. And our our title, like I said, was entrusted. His purpose, the gospel, our focus It becomes what we direct all of our energy to, what we direct our training to. And we see it over and over and over again. God desires all to be saved. God desires everyone in this room to be saved. If there's someone here that has not put their trust in Jesus Christ, now is the time to do that. Because by His death on the cross in our place, taking the penalty for our sin, He has given us the opportunity for salvation if we turn to Him and if we believe on Him and trust Him with our lives. If you've never done that, this morning's the time to do that. To say, God, I believe You. I believe what You've done on the cross. I have sinned. I can't do this on my own. I need You. And I give You my life. This is the morning to do that. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, it's easy for me to look over a passage like this because I'm like, yeah, I know that. I know I should be in the Word. I know I should be feeding on it. I know I should be exercising the spiritual disciplines. But Lord, forgive me for days I don't make that a priority. 
For days I let a whole lot of other distractions come in and take me away from what's really important. Lord, I pray for our church that you would burn into our hearts your purpose, your desire for all to be saved, your desire to raise up servants of God that will preach the gospel and stand for you and live in godly ways so the world can see your light. Help that to be our focus, the picture we're striving for, what motivates us, God. Lord, so many here have been saved a long time. I pray that this text, just as Paul did to Timothy, would remind us, give us a kick in the seat of the pants to keep us going, to make sure we're doing what we need to be doing and not just coasting. Lord, may we be a church on fire for you that knows your word, dedicated to training, and that preaches your gospel. In Jesus' name.